The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, the first chapter. Glory to you, O Lord. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, saying, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. All right, so let's talk about this uh, text, Matthew 1, 18-25. And we've been, uh, during Advent, this is the fourth Sunday of Advent, during Advent we've been working through uh, different things that all of us, whether you're a believer or not a believer, a Christian or not a Christian, there's these different things that all of us want. They're out there in the future. Uh, we hope, if, if, if you get to a place where you don't believe that they're out there in, their, in your future, uh, you're in a pretty bad spot. But all of us want uh, power. Is that the right word? All, all of us want, we, we want something, we want the ability, the energy, the power to have our problems solved, to be able to fix the stuff that's wrong with our lives. We also want forgiveness. Uh, not, not just in the, you know, the, the Christian sense of the word where we want God to forgive our sins. Although for some of you, this is a concern. We want our relationships to be fixed. All, your, your best friends, your closest family members, your worst enemies, there's walls between you and them. And maybe they're walls of enmity or like anger. Maybe it's just awkwardness, discomfort. But there's these walls there that you wish were gone. You wish there could be reconciliation. Uh, we talked last week about community. We all want to belong. We, we, we want to have a group of people. It could be a small group of people, depending upon what your personality type is. It could be a large group of people who know you and you know them, who accept you and you accept them, who love you and you love them. We all crave this. Uh, today, just to sort of sum it up here, and this is going to be a specifically Christian. Uh, the other sermons were too, but this desire is specifically Maybe it's not specifically Christian, but it's specifically religious. This desire that if there is a God who's there, we want to know Him. We, we, want, to, we want Him to show Himself to us. We, we want to know exactly who He is. A lot of you in here, it's Christian church, I'm assuming that a lot of you in here, you believe that there's someone out there. A lot of you, out of that group of people, I should say a lot of you, because I don't know the stats, some of you feel like you've got a connection with him. You know him and he knows you. However weak sometimes that feeling is of knowing him. A lot of you, you believe in God, but there's not, the, you, there's nothing there. Like, it's just a, strictly a matter of like, I'm jumping out here in the dark. I, I think that there's a God who's there. I was raised that way, or maybe I read a good book in college and I think there's a God who's there, but I don't know. I, I really can't say that I know him. And then some of you, are, you just don't know. You would probably classify yourself as agnostic. Like, maybe there is. I'm not saying there's not a God, but you just can't know if there's a God there. 
All of you, though, desire to know if that God is there. You want to know who he is. And if he exists, you want to know him. Right? And that's what Christmas is about. So we're going to talk about this morning is this desire that God would break down the wall between us and show himself to us, reveal himself to us. So let's read uh, Matthew 1, 18-25 again. And we'll walk through this and I'll explain a few things. And then we'll talk about uh, God and knowing God and uh, what God is doing in this text. Oh, so verse 18, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. So she's engaged to Joseph, which unlike in our culture, in uh, first century Jewish culture, that's a legal status. There's like a gradation to being married. There's single. And then there's betrothed, which is there's, you know, just paperwork you fill out for that. It's official. And then uh, uh, there's uh, marriage, which comes next. She's betrothed to Joseph, but before they had come together, this is talking about having sex, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now Luke talks about this as well, and I'm going to get to this in a minute. I'm not just going to go through this and pretend like it's not worth discussing the virgin birth. But Luke talks about this as well. This is not a pagan sort of, you know, um, uh, Achilles' mom and dad, like his dad was a god and his mom was a woman, and they have sex together. Somehow the god embodies himself and they have sex together. Uh, this is not what's happening to Mary. The Holy Spirit is putting the infant, the, uh, the uh, little tiny baby Jesus inside of her womb. It's not a sexual experience. This is she's pregnant, and it happened because the Holy Spirit put that inside of her. Uh, Luke talks about that as well. We'll come back to that in just a few minutes. She was found to be a child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, being a just man means that he does the right thing. So is, for, for Joseph, doing the right thing means two things here. He just found out that his fiance is pregnant and he hasn't had sex with her. And so he's going to put her away. He's going to divorce her. He's not going to marry her because she cheated on him. But he's a good man too. He doesn't want to put her to shame. So he's not going to do it publicly. He's not going to do it. See, there's a way you could do it publicly you know, you could get it in the, the, the tabloid, sort of. I mean, she, they weren't very important people. But you could do it out in front of the community so that she would be shamed. Uh, it's, it's very, very unlikely that she would have harm done to her by the Jewish community in the first century. But she certainly would be ostracized. If this sort of, unlike, the, unlike the Greeks and the Romans in the world of the first century, um, the Jews were very, very morally strict. This sort of thing, you know, getting pregnant out of wedlock uh, would have been definitely frowned upon. So Joseph, dissolves, Joseph resolves to do it quietly. He doesn't want her to be shamed. Verse 20, but he's thinking about these things. And behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, uh, don't fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. So, uh, uh, And the reason why is because he's going to save his people uh, from their sins. So the name Jesus is a Jewish name. It's just the name Joshua which is a, a, a common name that, that, that we all use. Uh, Jesus is the Greek version of the Jewish name Joshua. And Joshua just means Yahweh will save. Yahweh will save. Now, you name your kid Joshua, like there's two or three, you know, there's actually three or four different Joshuas in the Old Testament. One of them really famous, book of the Bible written after him. One of them semi-famous, he was a high priest in the days of uh, uh, Zechariah. Two of them not famous at all. It's a fairly common, during Jesus' day, there was lots of boys named Jesus or Joshua. It's not a really, it's, it's a really common name. So, so let's say you're, uh, you're Joshua from the book of Joshua. You're his mom. 
and you want to name him Joshua or Jesus. And what you're saying when you name him this is Yahweh is going to save us in the future. I'm naming my kid Joshua because I believe that Yahweh will save us. Now look, the angel tells Joseph, you're going to marry your kid, Yahweh will save us, because he, the kid, will save us from our sins. Drawing a connection between Yahweh, the creator God of the Old Testament, the redeemer of Israel, the one who spoke to the prophets, the one who promised someday to forgive the sins of the people, and this kid who is going to save his people from their sins. It's one of the earliest indications that the writers of the New Testament thought of Jesus in terms of more than just a powerful prophet or a chosen one. They actually equated him with Yahweh. You're going to call him Yahweh will save because he will save his people from their sins. And the prophecy that, that he quotes from Isaiah 7 uh, backs this up too. I mean, I mean, it's a similar sort of idea. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Emmanuel is just Hebrew for God is with us. In Isaiah's day, uh, God wasn't with them. There's not, God's not living in the temple anymore. Uh, the temple's been abandoned and been destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 BC. And for 500 years, a super important question in the Jewish mindset, you can read the Mishnah about this. You can read the prophets. You can read the Apocrypha. You can read other writings from Jesus' day. An important question is, when is God going to come back home and live with us? When is God going to come back? And now, this angel tells Joseph, the baby that Mary is going to have is going to be God with us. God is coming back. It's not so Jesus isn't just a sign that God is going to come back home. The birth of Jesus actually is God with us. God coming back home. Jesus is God. Jesus is the point of contact between God's world and our world. Jesus is the place where eternity and then our reality here intersect. Jesus is God with us. This is what makes, so this is what makes Christianity different than all the philosophies and all the other religions in the world. And that's kind of like a, um, Usually kind of, it freaks me out to make categorical statements like that because, you know, anytime, anytime somebody says 100% of everything, you can always, if you look hard enough, you can find um, an outlier. But I think it's, I, this is actually, I, I feel pretty confident in saying this, that all the religions in the world and all the philosophies of the world differ from Christianity in this one way, that God himself returns and fixes what humans screwed up. The thing that he originally created in humans screwed up, God returns and fixes that thing. This is, this is not, there's a, there's a common, this is, this is almost like a, a, a business trope at this point, right? That um, somebody creates something in the business world, it's taken away from them, it gets screwed up, and they get called back in to fix it. It happens all the time. So Charles Schwab founded, uh, Charles Schwab, and... Um, uh, the, the investment institution. And then he, uh, it was uh, a question of whether it was purposely taken from him or he willingly stepped down. Things went really, really, went, went really, really south fast. And then in 2004, he was called back to take it over and resurrect it. Why is this? It's because the person who created the thing knows the thing best and is most invested in it, is most willing to do the hard work to fix it. This happens all the time, right? This is another famous example is Larry Page, who founded um, 
Google. He was the CEO of Google. Stepped back for a while because he was convinced. He was convinced by his board of directors that, so you're super good at technology, but you don't have a lot of great leadership skills yet. You're a young person. So why don't we hire like a leader, a CEO? So they hire a different CEO and Google starts to stagnate. I mean, Google's never been in super big trouble, but it starts to stagnate. And so they hire Larry eventually to come back and he uses innovation to like, uh, make it moving forward again. Most famous example while I'm thinking about, uh, tech is Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs creates Apple, right? He's forced out in the mid eighties, like literally forced out, comes back. Apple's about to go bankrupt. It's bad enough that when Steve Jobs is asked to take back over in the 1990s, he's got to borrow money from Microsoft to make it, to make it work. But he creates one of the most powerful companies in the world because he knows it. It's his baby. He created it. And he's super invested in it. He's got all kinds of emotional, psychological cash in the game. He wants, he, he wants Apple to work. This is what happens to the world, right? God creates this world, this beautiful universe, where he designs us to have this perfect relationship with him, perfect relationship with each other, perfect relationship with the environment. And what do humans do? We screw the whole thing up. And this is what makes Christianity different. God comes back to say, I'm CEO again, and I'm going to fix this thing. No other religion, no other philosophy has this, right? So Buddhism, and I've talked to a bunch of you, you guys know I, I actually like Buddhism, uh, though I disagree with it on fundamental levels. There's a lot about Buddhism that I really, really like. Buddhism's got a great, a bunch of great notions. But when it comes to actually achieving nirvana, when it comes to actually achieving, uh, achieving a, a permanent reality of perfection, all these great ideas boil down to this. You've got to follow the eightfold path. You've got to talk right. You have to have the right kind of job. These are literally the eight parts of the eightfold path. I'm not going to give you all of them. You have to do right actions. You have to meditate frequently. So, you know, when it comes right down to it, Buddhism, it recognizes, like Christianity does, that there's problems in the world. But its solution is to give you advice about how to fix your problems. Here's what you need to do to fix your problems. Like, honestly, like, I can't meditate. I, I can do it. I, I'm, you know, we're, we as Christians are supposed to be praying and meditating. But you, you start to pray or meditate, and like, it's not very long before you're thinking about, you know, the Cardinals or Taco Bell or just anything besides meditation or prayer, right? I mean, I, I, I want to I speak right, but like, I know for a fact, I talk to at least one of you every week who points out something to me that either I misspoke or I used my words in a way that wasn't gracious with somebody else. And I'm trying like the Dickens to be a good guy. And you can give me advice. You can say, hey, talk right, do right, meditate, pray. And I'm just not, I'm just not getting it. Islam is, Islam's a little bit different. Islam believes that all of you were born Muslims, but that over time you rebel. And so people who convert to Muslim, actually the, the word for conversion to Muslim is reconversion, is because you're coming back to, to, to what you were intended to be. But you're, the, the problem is that you're fundamentally perfect, but you've slipped and fallen. And, and I have the same issues that I have with Buddhism. Like, I can obey the laws of Allah. I, could try, I mean, I can try to obey them, but they're just, there's just so many, you know, and you're playing whack-a-mole with all these things. Like, I can focus on, like, right speech, I can focus on using my words kindly, 
But then I'm like ignoring my family or I'm being lazy at my job or I'm not taking care of my property. So I'll turn and I'll focus on my family and the next thing I'm ignoring somebody else who needs help over here. And like you can spend your life trying to do what you're supposed to do to become a better person. And it literally is a game of whack-a-mole. As soon as you hit one in the head, another one pops up. Before you know it, your arm's worn out trying to hit all these things. Maybe it's a philosophy. Maybe it's the American dream. Maybe it's this promise that if you work super hard and make a bunch of money, you can retire and have, you know, I talk about the American dream a lot in here. Fill in the blank for like what your happy future is going to be. The thing is, is like, you guys know this. this is, I'm not the first one to say this. You could, you could live that life. All of you could. You're in this position where you could have your very own McMansion. But, and again, this is like super common. This is like sitcom material, I know. But like, it's not, it's not, it's not a secret that like the McMansion life is like a breeding ground for divorce, disaffected teenagers, loneliness, depression. While you're planning out the, you know, the, 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 the golf retirement in Arizona that you have planned out. This is not any, again, it's whack-a-mole. You can make a bunch of money if you want to, but at what expense? And you also, I'm not, I'm not saying that making money is bad. You can focus on other stuff and not make enough money. It's whack-a-mole. Maybe, maybe it's materialism. Maybe just, let's talk philosophically. Maybe it's materialism, right? Maybe like, Focusing on your material world, like working hard, eating right, exercising, taking care of your body. But the thing is, that this, all that's super helpful, right? You need to make money, you need to exercise, you need to eat right. But I, I personally, I've like got these feelings that need to be grappled with. I have loneliness. I get anxiety. That going out and jogging, eating healthy, working hard at work, having a glass of wine with my wife and relax, these don't actually help those things. So maybe it's spiritualism. Maybe that's the answer. Maybe, but again, the same problem, right? I mean, like, I have physical problems. Like, I've got money problems that no amount of deep breathing or meditation is going to help. Maybe it's pragmatism. You should just figure out what works and do that. But again, I mean, I'm just saying the same thing over and over again. I don't, stuff doesn't work. Like you work hard at a project and it doesn't come off. You work hard to save up some money and you get some sort of like weird medical bill that wipes it out. Like stuff doesn't work. I don't, I don't need advice, right? This is like, so my car, uh, uh, I, I have this car and it's sitting out there right now. It's a complete piece of junk, right? So the, the, the brakes are going to go and like I, t- I talked to some people. Well, here's the, here's the deal. Watch this YouTube video. You can fix your own brakes. Okay, I know better than that. Like, I, I could watch the YouTube video. I'm going to screw the whole thing up, right? I can't do it. Like, I don't need the advice. Okay, well, then take it to an expert. So I did. You take it to professional, and you get the brakes fixed. And the brakes just went out again. Like, the brake line busted, and there's brake fluid everywhere. I get, and if I could get the brakes fixed, it would be something else. Like, I don't need advice. I don't, not, you know, this is, this is just an example, right? I'm not saying, this is just an example. If the brakes need fixed, you fix the brakes. Fundamentally, what I need is a new car. That's what I need. I don't need expertise. I don't need advice. I need somebody to come and make my car new again. That's what makes Christianity different than all the religions and all the philosophies in the whole world. 
is our God does not pass out advice. And I, I know you can dig around. You can find the Ten Commandments. And that, that those are rules for living and those sorts of things. But, but fundamentally, the story, the narrative is not about God giving out his expertise. He's not telling you how to live your better life. He's saying, I'm going to insert myself into this story, and I'm going to fix it myself. So, so imagine a story. Imagine a novel. Imagine if you've read this, uh, you'll get it. If you haven't read it, you should go home and read it because it's good. Ernest Hemingway's Farewell to Arms. Ernest Hemingway's Farewell to Arms is a really, really human story in the sense that it ends all screwed up. I don't want to especially spoil it for those of you who are going to enjoy it later. Like one of the main characters, the last scene is like one of the main characters dies. Her baby dies. Her boyfriend is all alone walking in the rain. All right. So that's the story that Hemingway is writing. And let's, let's imagine that at some point in that story, as he's writing that story, he thinks, I don't really care for how this story is going. So he starts giving advice to his characters. Hey, stop drinking so much. You know, hey, don't go AWOL from the army. Those sorts of things. Hey, get medical attention as soon as you find out that your girlfriend's pregnant. He starts writing this advice into the story, but he already knows that the characters aren't going to listen to this advice. The story is so screwed up, it's beyond hope. Advice doesn't help. So let's imagine the Hemingway, the only thing, only solution he has is to write himself as a character into the story and to start fixing things himself. That would be a weird novel, and you probably wouldn't consider that to be serious fiction. Oh, I don't know. Maybe you were. If, if you were significantly postmodern, it would be the kind of uh, uh, off-the-wall avant-garde thing you might enjoy. But actually, that's what's happening in the story of the Bible. God is making, he's writing himself into the story to take all the bullets, to fix all the problems. Now, come back to that in just a second. It's a good spot. This is a good spot to pause and ask the question, because I'm going somewhere with this. Why the virgin birth then? Like for a lot of you, the whole Christmas story is really nice. Even for those of you who are believers. But it's hard to believe this whole virgin birth nonsense. So can we talk about that just for a couple seconds? All right. Uh, do you guys know who uh, Albert Schweitzer is? Uh, about 50 years ago, he'd be, everybody would know who Albert Schweitzer is. He's a famous uh, missionary to Africa, medical missionary to Africa, uh, philosopher, concert pianist, New Testament theologian. He's a brilliant, just absolutely brilliant. Albert Schweitzer was an absolutely brilliant man. But he, but he wrote and he said, he explained the virgin birth in this way. You know, 2,000 years ago, people just weren't as, as smart as you and I. Like, we live in the West and we have test tubes and uh, uh, catalytic converters and microwave ovens. We're, we are smarter than all the, uh, the, the people who lived before us. And back 2,000 years ago, uh, those ignorant, uh, superstitious people they could believe in something like a virgin birth. It was the kind, the Bible's got that kind of stuff in it. It's just kind of this superstitious ignorant stuff. Well, uh, two, two things. One is, is that, yes, are, are, are we in some sense smarter than them? I, I guess so, right? We do have microwave ovens and they didn't. However, as, as, as brilliant as we are and as stupid as they are, and I'm exaggerating for a fact. They did know how to make babies. They did, they did know that. They knew, Matthew knew, Luke knew, Mary knew, this comes out in the narrative quite, quite obviously. Mary knew that telling people, I got pregnant, but I didn't have sex with anybody, was a pretty ridiculous thing. She was gonna, this was just as scandalous then as it is now. It was just as hard for them to believe as it is for you to believe. 
This is not some sort of like superstitious people versus the enlightened, intelligent white people in the 21st century. This is actually meant to be scandalous. And the reason why is this. Okay, go back to the whole God writing himself into the story. God's going to write himself into the story of the world. What's the best way to do that? Like, just ask yourself, like, be creative. What's the best way to do that? Maybe we could have him like popping out of a telephone booth, like just showing up randomly. Maybe we could like Brahma, the Hindu god. Maybe we could have him like being birthed out of the navel of a previous god. Like, how would you do it? Like, how would you get like flying down in a suit, in, 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 like a superhero suit? Like, if you were gonna, if you, if I was gonna write. God himself into the story. This seems like the, like a legitimate way to do it. He, he wants to be a human. See, the whole point is that if he's going to write himself into the story and fix our problems, he wants to be just as human as me and you. But he can't be just an ordinary human. He's the creator God. And to show up with the DNA of a woman, to live in his mom's belly for nine months, and then to walk around, and to skin his knees, and to have his hair cut, and to have conversations with his mom about what are we going to eat tonight, and to have conversations with his dad about what are we going to do tomorrow. It's going to necessitate some sort of human birth if he's going to be really human. But if he's really God, it's going to have to be something spectacular. It can't be like the way that you and I were born. Now, this doesn't prove anything, right? I'm not here to prove anything to you. I'm just saying, this makes sense. The virgin birth makes sense. If God's going to write himself into this story, And this is exactly what he's doing. He's writing himself into our story because he wants to carry your problems. He wants to carry your broken breaks in his own body. He wants to carry your loneliness in his own body. He wants to experience what it's like to be abandoned. He wants to experience what it's like to lie and get away with it or to lie and get away with it but feel guilty or to lie and not get away with it. He's not going to lie because he's God, but he wants to experience all of that for you. He, in fact, wants to experience your own death because he knows that he's strong enough to fix it. He can't give you, a, he can't give you advice about death. Jesus can't say to you, just try to keep breathing. You won't. The only thing he can do is come, take your body, unite it to his body, die on the cross, and rise from the dead so that the power of his resurrection body can come to you. That's what Christmas is about. God writing himself into our story to fix our problems. This Christmas, let him write himself into your story. Let your story be a part of his story. Let God, the incarnate God in Jesus Christ, the one who died and rose from the dead, let him be the main character in your story. Amen.